The following resource is from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'm passing out a sheet um, that comes from the study that we're doing tonight. The first one is Nine Steps to Apostasy. Believe me, I'm not encouraging this. But rather, taking from some of the conversation that Christian and Hope will have, um, just drawing out and maybe updating, updating the language a little bit so that we can see the progress that people go through as they slide away from the Lord. And why? So that if you see any of these things happening in you, you can quickly repent, turn around, get back on the path of your solid walk with Christ. So we'll be talking about that tonight. And on the other side, um, at the very end, we're going to talk about this man, Ignorance, who comes right to the gate and does not get in. And so therefore, it is very possible, and you heard Josh's sermon a little while ago about those that say, Lord, Lord, and they're convinced that they're believers, and they really are not. I can't think of a more tragic thing than to think that you're a believer in Jesus Christ and then find out that terrifying statement, away from me, I never knew you. Uh, that's a terrifying thing. And so this, um, these are some probing questions to ask yourself based on some of the things in there. But don't look at those now. We'll get to those uh, by and by. We're going to pick up in our study uh, in Pilgrim's Progress. We'll be looking uh, after Hopeful finishes his testimony. Now, I want to tell you about Hopeful's testimony. We talked about that last time. Remember how many times he sought the Lord and asked Him and seeking and all that. And somebody said, well, I mean, all you need is simple faith, just trusting in Christ. What is all that praying and praying and praying? I thought you only had to pray the sinner's prayer one time. What is that? And uh, I don't, I, I, the, the text does not say that he wasn't justified the very first time he prayed that. But he had no sense of the justification, no sense or assurance of salvation and kept pressing on and pressing on until he gained a healthy, strong sense of assurance and Christ was, as he says, revealed to him. So that's just picking up on that. But I had wanted, if possible, if at all possible, to contrast Hopeful's solid testimony of faith in Christ with that of ignorance. And so we're going to begin with the discussion um, about ignorance. All right. Let's see if I can find it. Okay. All right. So he urges um, Christian after Hopeful's testimony. He looks back and sees ignorance trailing behind. Ignorance is walking behind. And he says, look uh, how far that yon yonder youngster loitereth behind. So uh, ignorance is trailing behind, and they decide that they are going to invite him to come up with them. Now realize they've already interacted with this guy, and it didn't go well the first time. But now they want to see if they can somehow uh, talk to him one more time about his soul. Then Christian said to him, come away, man. Why do you stay so far behind? Ignorance answered, I take my pleasure in walking alone, even more a great deal than in company, unless I like it the better. Then Christian said to Hopeful, but softly, Did I not tell you he cared not for our company? But, however, said he, Come up and let us talk away the time in this solitary place. Then directing his speech to ignorance, he said, Come, how do you? How stands it between God and your soul now? Ignorance answers, I hope well. For I am always full of good motions that come into my mind to comfort me as I walk. I hope that I'm doing well with God because I have good thoughts they come into my mind as I walk. I have good, a good frame of mind that comes. What good motion, said Christian? Pray tell us. Why? I think of God and of heaven. 
Christian answered, so do the devils and damned souls. Ignorance, but I think of them and desire them. Christian, so do many that are never like to come there. The soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing. Ignorance, but I think of them and leave all for them. Christian, that I doubt. Now you just stop right there. Ignorance is claiming that he's left everything for Christ. He's turned his back on the world. He's turned his back on his, on his uh, hopes, uh, everything earthly, and he is following Christ. And Christian says, that I doubt. I doubt that you've done that. For leaving all is a hard matter. Yea, much harder than many are aware of. But why or by what art thou persuaded that thou hast left all for God and heaven? Now, what is he asking? He's saying, what is your ground of assurance? On what are you basing your confidence? He's really probing here, isn't he? He's zeroing in. So nosy. Why would he do that? Just out of love for this individual, a desire if you're genuinely born again, you not resent these kinds of questions, but rather would just give a testimony to God's grace for you. It's when there's a problem and, you know, it's like the dentist probing and there starts to be some pain. It's like, ah, stop that. Well, that shows all the more the need for probing, you know, if there's a, a recoiling. But anyway, he says, how do you know that you've left all for God in heaven? Ignorance answers, my heart tells me so. My heart tells me so. The wise man says, he that trusts his own heart is a fool. Ignorance, this is spoken of an evil heart, but mine is a good one. But how dost thou prove that, asked Christian? How do you know that you have a good heart? <laughs> Ignorance answers, it comforts me in the hopes of heaven. <laughs> Christian, that may be through its deceitfulness. For a man's heart may minister comfort to him in the hopes of that thing for which he yet has no ground to hope. You can assure yourself, your heart can assure you of heaven when actually there's no solid ground of assurance. Ignorance, but my heart and my life agree together, and therefore my hope is well grounded. Christian, who told thee that thy heart and life agree together? Ignorance, my heart tells me so. What do you notice missing in ignorance's conversation? What does he never say anything about ever? On, okay, leaning only on Christ. He never mentions Christ. Never mentions. What else does he not mention? Scripture. There's just no scriptural testimony here at all. If you had seen, that's why I wanted to do them side by side. How many verses did Hopeful bring you through? There was at one point like eight straight verses that were convicting him of sin and then others speaking assurance to his soul. You see? And it was based on the word of God that his assurance came. This man is basing his assurance on what? His heart tells him so. There's a heart religion here apart from, um, from the assurance of scripture. Who told thee that thy heart and life agree together? My heart tells me so. Christian says, ask my fellow if I be a thief. That's kind of a, I can't believe you said that. Ask my friend if I'm a thief. He's not going to tell you I'm a thief. You know, we'll stick together, my friend and I, right? Could it be your heart is deceiving you? Your heart tells, tells you so. Except the word of God beareth witness in this matter, other testimony is of no value. Ignorance answers, but is not that a good heart that hath good thoughts? And is, that, is not that a good life that is according to God's commandments? Christian, yes, that is a good heart that hath good thoughts. And that is a good life that is according to God's commandments. But it is one thing indeed to have these, and it is another thing only to think you have them. So it is a good heart that thinks good thoughts. The question is, what are good thoughts? They're going to get into that now. Ignorance says, pray what count you good thoughts in a life according to God's commandments. Christian, there are good thoughts of diverse kinds, some respecting ourselves, some God, some Christ, and some other things. 
Ignorance, what good thoughts are there respecting ourselves? Christian, such as agree with the word of God. Now, you almost don't need to go much farther than that, do you? You want to think good thoughts about yourself? Think about yourself the way the word of God thinks about you. That's all. Think about yourself that way. Christian, when do our thoughts of ourselves, or ignorance says, when do our thoughts of ourselves agree with the word of God? Christian, when we pass the same judgment upon ourselves, which the word passes to explain myself. The word of God says of persons in a natural condition, that's key, before they come to faith in Christ, in a natural condition, there is none righteous, there is none that doeth good. It says also that every imagination of the heart of man is only evil and that continually. And again, the imaginations of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now then, when we think thus of ourselves, having a sense thereof that our thought, then are our thoughts good ones because according to the word of God. In other words, the word of God slays our pride, doesn't it? The word of God doesn't leave you standing. Basically, you see that you need a savior. You see that apart from Christ, you would have no hope of salvation. And thus your thoughts of yourself are that if Jesus had not come, I would deserve to go to hell. I would deserve it. And I believe that with all my heart. That's when you're thinking good thoughts about yourself. There's so much more we could say about this. Suppose you've already come to faith in Christ. There are many more good thoughts you could think about yourself then. My righteousness, if I have any, it comes from Christ. But I do have such because he promised it to me and I trust him for it. So there are many good thoughts you could have, but the rule is still the same. You think good thoughts about yourself when you think according to the word of God. That's all. All right. What does ignorance say? After all of these things, ignorance says, I will never believe that my heart is thus bad. I can't believe that. I'm not that bad. Therefore, thou never hadst one good thought concerning thyself in thy life, said Christian. <laughs> you, you know, you've never thought properly about yourself if you don't think you're that bad, if you think that generally you're fine, you're good, etc. Well, they go on from there, and boy, would I like to take you through it. But basically, he takes him through the ways. When are our ways according to the commands? Again, it's if you live according to the word of God. God, and what about thoughts of God? Well, that God sees you through. He sees you truly. He knows who you really are, Psalm 139. Our ways are, are open, laid open before God. And then, uh, toward the end, ignorance says to him, do you think I'm such a fool as to think that God can see no further than I or that I would come to God in the best of my performances? It says, I know that I can't come to him in my good deeds. I know that. Christian, well, why? How do you think in this matter? Christian, or ignorance says, why, to be short, I think I must believe in Christ for justification. Sounds good, right? Well, what I find in theological discussions is you're always needing to define terms. What it means to ignorance that he comes to Christ for justification and what the Bible says we're going to find are actually two different things. Christian says, how? Uh, think thou must believe in Christ when thou seest not thy need of him? It doesn't make sense. Earlier he said he'd never believe his heart was evil and yet he's coming to Christ only for justification. It doesn't make any sense. Why do you think you need Christ then if you're basically a good person? He says, you've never seen your, yourself in your original or actual sins, but you have an opinion of yourself and what you do is plainly renders you to be one that did never see a necessity of Christ's personal righteousness. How then do you say, I believe in Christ? Ignorance answers, I believe well enough for all of that. Despite all of what you said, I believe fine. How do you believe? Ignorance, I believe, now listen, that Christ died for sinners and that I shall be justified before God from the cursed through his gracious acceptance of my obedience to the law. Absolutely wrong. Basically, the idea is that Christ is going to take my best efforts and work on them and then present them to God on my behalf. 
So it's going to be basically this man, ignorance, is going to be justified by his own works after Christ has fixed them up a little bit. That is not justification by faith alone. Not at all. Christian gives an answer. First of all, you believe with a fantastical faith, for this faith is nowhere described in the word of God. Second of all, you believe with a false faith because it takes justification from the personal righteousness of Christ and applies it to your own. Third, this is very important, a little hard to follow, but listen. This faith makes Christ not a justifier of your person, but of your actions and of your person for your actions' sake, which is false. In other words, you're not simply straight justified by faith in Christ. Rather, we have to go through your works first, you see. And your works are ultimately the basis of your acceptance before God. And that is false. And then fourthly, therefore this faith is deceitful, even such as will leave thee under the wrath of God in the day of God Almighty. For true justifying faith puts the soul as sensible of its lost condition by the law upon flying for refuge under Christ's righteousness, which righteousness of his is not an act of grace by which he maketh for justification your obedience accepted with God, but rather his personal obedience to the law and doing and suffering for us what is required at our hands. This righteousness, I say, true faith accepts. So he tells him the true doctrine. He is dealing quite directly and vigorously with this man, isn't he? Why are we so afraid to tell the truth? Why are we afraid to probe and to ask questions? What harm could come from it? Either you are dealing with a Christian or you're dealing with a non-Christian. If you're dealing with a non-Christian who has a false assurance, you are the greatest friend in the world if you can probe through and prove it to be false assurance. Why? Because they're in grave danger, aren't they? I actually think they're in the most danger you can be in this world is to have a false assurance having been thoroughly instructed in the religious things. You're in danger, grave danger. And I think it takes more courage to witness to that kind of person than any other category of person there is. Very, very difficult to take a religious person who has a false assurance and show them that their ground is unstable or unsteady. They get violently angry. And it's, uh, you know, it's the same thing we saw with the Pharisees. How angry were they at Jesus when Jesus said, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, or you will not go to heaven. What did he say in saying that? Pharisees are not going to heaven. That's devastating to them, and they were very angry about it. So, are you courageous enough? Are you willing to be great heart in the second half of the... You know, are you willing to go in and do what's necessary? The only thing that can happen to you is you get screamed at, <laughs> okay? But if it's a false assurance, don't they need to know it? Don't they need to know? I think so. And if, on the other hand, they are truly Christians, what damage can you do except to get, bring them through that which is a solid assurance so that you're understanding the righteousness of Christ and justification by faith alone and really instructing them how to speak properly about it? Either way. If it's done gently and lovingly, it must be done. I hope we get instructed in this way. They speak the truth to each other, don't they? And when you see the end of our evening tonight and what happens to ignorance, praise God for Christian that he told them the truth, although he didn't listen. Ultimately, <clears throat> ignorance does not listen. Ignorance uh, says that basically if you just simply accept the, the righteousness of Christ by a gift, that will lead you to lead, to lead a, a sinful, wicked life. <laughs> ignorance said, what, would you have us trust what Christ in his own person has done without us? This conceit would loosen the reins of our lust and tolerate us to live as we list. For what matter how we live if we may be justified by Christ's personal righteousness from all when we believe it? This is exactly the same argument made against Paul's doctrines. The exact same thing. Who cares how you live if we're just saved by grace? So I tell you, whenever I'm witnessing and somebody tells me that, I know I'm on the right track. I'm preaching Pauline doctrine. 
okay? Because the exact same thing came back at him. And how does Christian answer it? Ignorance is thy name, and as thy name is, so art thou. Ooh, my. <laughs> Even this thy answer demonstrates what I say. Ignorant thou art of what justifying righteousness is, and as ignorant how to secure thy soul through the faith of it from the heavy wrath of God. Yea, thou also art ignorant of the true effects of saving grace. What does saving grace do except make you hate sin? It is true that I can sin as much as I want and still go to heaven. That is true. I just hate sin and never want to sin again, ever, the rest of my life. So I do sin as much as I want, which is zero. You see what I'm saying? I never want to sin again. Sadly, I sin contrary to what I desire. Romans 7, read it. You know what I'm talking about. The very thing I hate, I keep doing. And the very thing I love, I don't do. Who can explain the wickedness of the human heart? But the fact is, do you really desire a free run in the course of sin? Don't you want to be free from that? Isn't sin the only thing that's ever ruined your life? Isn't sin the most bitter enemy of your life? Wouldn't you rather have never sin again the rest of your life? And so the idea that we can sin as much as we want and still go to heaven is actually a, a, a very telling remark that the person has not understood justification by faith. You see? So at that point, Hopeful says, has Christ ever revealed himself to you? And ignorance says, what? You're a man for revelations? I believe that what both you and all the rest of you say about this matter is but the fruit of distracted brains, said ignorance. So ignorance basically rejects the whole thing. In the end, Christian says to ignorance, give leave to, uh, ignorance says to him, that is your faith, but not mine. Yet mine, I doubt not, is as good as yours, though I have not in my head so many technicalities as you have. Christian says, give me leave to put in a word. You ought not so slightly to speak of this matter. For this I will boldly affirm, even as my good companion hath done, that no man can know Jesus Christ but by the revelation of the Father. Yea, and faith too, by which the soul layeth hold upon Christ, if it be right, must be wrought by the exceeding greatness of his mighty power, the working of which faith I perceive, poor ignorance thou art ignorant of. You don't know saving faith. You are lost. That's what he's saying. You're lost. Be awakened then. <clears throat> See thine own wretchedness and fly to the Lord Jesus and by his righteousness, which is the righteousness of God, for he himself is God, thou shalt be delivered from condemnation. He's giving him a final warning. Please turn to Christ. Don't trust in your own righteousness, your own heart. Ignorance answered, you go so fast, I cannot keep pace with you. Do you go on before, I will lag behind. And so they separate and they don't keep walking together. It's very sad. We're going to see ignorance again one more time. Now, as they go on from there, remember they're still in the enchanted ground and they're not allowed to sleep in the enchanted ground, so they're going to talk together. Christian and Hopeful discuss at this point how conviction of sin works. What happens is at this point they discuss the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. And what happens is little by little, as people are convicted by their sin, uh, but they're not truly born again, uh, they turn away from the conviction. They do not desire fear in this matter and so they throw it off so they discuss uh, what is the right fear how do you know that the fear you feel is true or right fear Christian answers true or right fear is discovered by three things first by its rise it is caused by saving convictions for sin secondly it, it drives the soul to lay fast hold of Christ for salvation and thirdly it begetteth and continueth in the soul a great reverence of God his word and his ways keeping it tender and making it afraid to turn from them to the right or to the left to anything that may dishonor God, break its peace, grieve the spirit, or cause the enemy to speak reproachfully. That is what the fear of God does, and it's a good thing. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. 
And so the fear of the Lord is, in fact, the, be, the beginning of wisdom. But unbelievers stifle conviction. They don't want to feel this conviction. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's repulsive to them. And ultimately, they're going to uh, turn uh, away from conviction. They think that fear must be from the devil. So then they begin to discuss a man that they both knew named Temporary. Now, the man Temporary started off in the Christian life but didn't go very far, okay? Uh, did you not know about 10 years ago a man named Temporary in your town who was a forward man in religion? Hopeful answered, know him, yes. He dwelt in Graceless, a town about two miles off from honesty. Two miles off from honesty, okay? <laughs> just, just a little bit off the center from honesty. Doesn't live in honesty, though. And he dwelt next door to one turnback. Uh, right, he dwelt under the same roof, roof with him. Well, that man was much awakened once, temporary was. I believe that then he had some sight of his sins and of the wages that were due thereto. Uh, hopeful, I am of your mind from my house not being three miles from him. He would often come, times come to me and that with many tears. Truly, I pity the man and was not altogether without hope for him. But uh, one may see it is not everyone that cries, Lord, Lord. So he was under conviction of sin, but it wasn't a saving work at this point. He was just feeling guilty. I mean, remember how horrible Judas felt before he committed suicide. Terrible feelings over sin does not mean God is working conviction in, into the heart. And so this person is feeling very badly about their soul, badly about their state. Uh, he told me, said Christian, once that he was resolved to go on pilgrimage, as we do now. But all of a sudden, he grew acquainted with one save self. And then he became a stranger to me. So he met save self and the two of them decided to save themselves. What does that mean? Well, it means to save their life in this world. They were attracted to this life in the world. Anyone who wants to save his life will do what? They'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it for eternity. You have to lose your life in this world. Well, save self wanted to save his life in this world. And so he began to talk to temporary. And temporary eventually decided he wasn't going to go on pilgrimage. Now, what does this mean? Have we seen people as we witnessed to or reached out and they've made a start? For a little while, they seem to have conviction, but then you can't get them to church anymore. You can't get them to come to a Bible study. You can't get them to do anything. What's happened to them? Well, this is what's being covered here. Uh, and so then we go into reasons for backsliding. What are the reasons that they backslide? Well, first of all, he says their minds haven't really changed. They have guilty feelings. They have conviction of sin, but they still think the same way about everything. So as soon as those feelings wear off, and they do wear off, when you're not listening to George Whitfield preaching anymore or listening to some other preacher anymore, you go home and give it a few days and it wears off. But your mind hasn't changed. What's another word for a change of mind? Repentance. Repentance. They haven't genuinely repented. There's no genuine turning away from sin to God. They still think the same way. And then in very graphic terms, Bunyan brings out the... the the image of the dog returning to its vomit, and I've chosen not to read it. But you can read it um, about the uh, dog returning to its vomit. But basically, it goes back to its old way of life. Secondly, uh, they give up uh, the Christian walk because of fear of man. They're afraid what people will think. Thirdly, because uh, they're ashamed of religion. And fourthly, they hate the feelings of guilt and terror, and so they throw them off. Now, at this point, Christian gives an illustration. He says, after Hopeful has given an assessment of the thing, he says, you're pretty near the business for the bottom of all of this is a lack of change of mind and will. They don't think any differently. Their wills are not changed. They're not converted. That's all. So they are like the felon, the thief, that stands before the judge. He quakes and trembles and seems to repent most heartily. But the bottom of all is the fear of the noose. They're afraid of the noose. They're afraid to die. 
Not that he has any detestation of the offense. He doesn't hate the sin. He doesn't hate the crime. He's just afraid of the consequences. As is evident because let this man have his liberty and he will return immediately to his life of thieving. He hasn't changed one bit. And so it is when people come under conviction and they're afraid and fear for their souls and there's a temporary feeling of fear, but no repentance, no turning, no faith, they will quickly return back to their old ways. Now at this point, Christian and Hopeful discuss the steps that apostates take in turning away from God. Take out your blue sheet, and I've basically put them in modern words. I was so convicted when I heard this, and so warned as well. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress should be read, I think, every year. And why? It keeps you, shall we say, on the straight and narrow. It keeps you from wandering, from drifting, from turning away. There are nine steps that they list to apostasy, putting them in more modern language. First, stop thinking as much as possible about God, death, and judgment day. Don't think about them anymore. Why do they stop thinking about these things? Why? They're uncomfortable. They're unpleasant. Who wants to think about that? And so they stop thinking about these things. They throw them off because they're discomfort. Secondly, they cast off little by little private spiritual duties, which would also be called spiritual disciplines, the very thing that Josh was talking to you earlier about. Private spiritual duties such as secret prayer, curbing lusts, careful watching over the soul in daily life, sorrow for sin, etc. These are the internal movements of the Spirit of God on an individual, right? These are the little things you do that nobody can see, but they're vitally involved in the Christian life. And they stop doing them. They cast off these private spiritual duties, little by little. Third, avoid the company of lively, joyful, active, Bunyan says, warm Christians. All right, why do you want to avoid these people? Why, why avoid them if you want to slide into apostasy? You know, why? Makes you feel uncomfortable, makes you feel guilty. What do they talk about all the time? Christ, people getting saved, the Bible, heaven. I mean, really? And so they don't want to be around those kind of people anymore. It's just they don't want to, they don't want to do that. All right, number four, now they're growing cold to public spiritual duties such as attending church, right? I've said before, a failure to attend church is a masking sin. It masks the real issues. The other stuff's already happened, you know? And then there's other issues going on. But if they're not attending church, inevitably... I'm not... Please understand, I'm not talking about physical infirmity. I'm not talking at all about homebound people who stay at home and pray and intercede for world missions and pray for the church and, and are involved as they can. Their bodies have failed them. There's nothing they can do. I am not addressing that case. I'm talking about people who uh, go about everyday life in, in every other way but this one. They will not go to church. And you ask why. It's a masking sin. It covers it over. I've said it's like, like a, an alcoholic that, whose breath always spell, smells of mint all the time. It's masking something, you know. And, and what I say is take off the mask and you'll see what's going on. All right? They are giving up on public spiritual duties such as public worship, reading, hearing of the Word of God, church functions, etc. Fifth, they begin to find little faults in the lifestyle of the godly, acting thus like the devil who's the accuser of the believers, right? So that religion can be cast off entirely because of the flaws seen in the godly. They start to pick holes in their garments, right? Call them what? What would be the basic of their hypocrites? Church is full of hypocrites. I tell you what, that's part of the slide into apostasy. They begin to see faults in people. Why do they see them? They actually are secretly delighted in them. They're glad to find them because it gives them an excuse to not go to church. Sixth, they begin to adhere to and closely associate with fleshly, worldly, openly sinful people. 
Seventh, they give way to sinful conversations in secret, and they delight in seeing such things that uh, in any honest person. I didn't write it right, but in an honest person, so as to do them all the more boldly. They like to see sins in people. They enjoy it. Okay. Then number eight, they start to play with quote little sins and quote openly. There starts to be kind of a defiance. You know, you'll see them openly doing things they wouldn't have done earlier in the process. And then number nine, final step, having thus been grad- gradually hardened, now the apostate openly reveals his or her state for all the world to see. They declare their independence. They are openly away from Christ. They will repudiate the gospel. Um, they despise it and turn away from it. Now, how could we use this? Well, do the opposite. <laughs> Don't do these things. And just look at the beginning. Think much about God, death, and judgment day. Be prepared for it. Think a lot about it, right? Don't cast off private spiritual duties. The time you don't want to pray is the time you need to pray the most. Isn't that true? The time you don't want to read the Bible is the time that you need to read it the most because your heart's growing a little hard, a little cold. So that's when you need to turn back to it. Um, I find that it's actually a relatively thin barrier that can be punctured with a little perseverance if you don't let it go on too long. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to pray. I really don't, but I know I need to pray. So I get down and I start praying, and it isn't long before I've punctured that satanic screen between me and prayer, and I'm enjoying prayer again. I mean, it could be just a short time, if you keep short accounts with God. But that screen gets thicker and thicker the longer you wait, and it gets harder and harder to puncture through it. Does that make sense? So read through, and uh, don't do this, please. Don't do this. And if you see this happening in others, warn them, go to them, reach out to them. I thought a lot about this in terms of um, teenagers growing up in Christian homes. How many teenagers follow these steps until they're not in church at all, ever, and they're open apostates? It's a scary thing. So to all you young people, to my own children, to anybody here listening, don't go through this. Keep your heart's heart and uh, soft and hot toward God. Keep in prayer. Keep walking with Him. Okay? All right. So they discuss these things. Hey, these are great conversations. Do you have kind of conversations like this? I think there are nine steps to apostasy. And then they go, Brrr. It's like, wow. <laughs> You know, there are four reasons that they do. I mean, these guys were great list makers. All right. Next, we come into one of the sweetest moments in the entire pilgrimage, and it's called Beulah Land. And if Alan Mosey were here, I'd get him to sing it. We just stop right now and we'll just listen to him sing Beulah Land. Okay. What is Beulah Land? Now, this is a very interesting question. Now, the Beulah Land that Alan Mosey would sing about is heaven. But this Beulah Land is different because they're not in the celestial city yet. And therefore, it's a fascinating thing. Let's read it and look at it. Now, I saw in my dream that by this time the pilgrims were got over the enchanted ground and were entering into the country of Beulah whose, whose air was very sweet and pleasant. The way lying directly through it, they solaced themselves there for a season. Yea, here they heard continually the singing of birds and every day the flowers appear in the earth and they heard the voice of the turtle in the land. Uh, in this country the sun shineth night and day wherefore this was beyond the valley of the shadow of death and also out of the reach of giant despair. Neither could they from this place see so much as doubting, so much as see doubting castle. Here they were within the sight of the city that they were going to. Uh, also here met them some of the inhabitants thereof, for in this land the shining ones commonly walked, because it was upon the borders of heaven. What is this? They can see the city. They can see it clearly. And they, they're kind of surrounded by angels. Wow. In this land also, 
the contract between the bride and the bridegroom was renewed. Yea, here as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so did their God rejoice over them. Here they had no want of corn or wine, for in this place they met with abundance of what they had sought for in all their pilgrimage. This was a, a rich, rich experience they're going through here. Here they heard voices from out of the city, loud voices saying, Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him. Here all the inhabitants of the country called them the holy people or the redeemed of the Lord or sought out. Now as they walked in this land, they had more rejoicing than in parts more remote from the kingdom to which they were bound. And drawing near to the city, they had yet a more perfect view thereof. It was builded of pearls and precious stones. Also the street thereof was paved with gold, so that by reason of the natural glory of the city and the reflection of the sunbeams upon it, Christian with desire felt sick and hopeful also had a fit or two of the same disease. So they're just heartsick for what? They want to go to heaven. And yet they're having visions of it. It's like they're laying on the ground. What is this? I think that this has to do with some of these experiences that Christians have had whereby the Holy Spirit directly and immediately presses visions of heaven onto the soul so that you have this sense of God, of His love, of His pleasure. They're not in the celestial city yet. They've still got some journeying to go, but they're close. And so he just opens up heaven. Do you remember when I was preaching through Romans and I talked about these experiences from the book of Romans? <clears throat> and I talked about... Um, I don't have it with me. But... Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, for example, who took a horse ride into the woods and was struck to the ground and for an hour had visions of Christ and of His glory and of the joys of heaven. For an hour laying on the ground in the forest. Or D.L. Moody is walking down Wall Street... Now, that's a place for a vision. Now, I'm telling you what. But he said he had such an overpowering experience of the love and the glory of God that he asked him to stay his hand because he didn't feel he would survive. But I'm thinking, why would you want to? I mean, go ahead and take me now. There's a sense in which just, I'm done. I'm ready to go. There's just these effusions. I talked to you about many of these examples of the guy, remember, who had tuberculosis, who had terrible consumption and would be coughing, but in between be having visions of Christ laying on the bed and was so happy that, that the people standing around wished they could have his disease <laughs> because they would gladly put up with it for the joy he felt in the presence of God. And he almost went seamlessly from that sickbed right into heaven. These experiences have been testified to numerous times, and I think Bunyan probably had them in prison as he was praying and seeking God. And I just wonder if we just accept a much lower standard sometimes. This is Some people call this uh, mysticism. Uh, I don't think so. I think it's just the goodness of God and showing His love. Bunyan had these kinds of experiences. And so they, he calls it Beulah Land. It leaves them homesick for heaven. I think this is a healthy thing, isn't it? <laughs> isn't, isn't this healthy? You get up from experience like this and you may never have it again. It may never, never happen to you again. Pascal had it just one time. Sewed it in his coat. Wrote about it in poetry and sewed it in his coat. You know, he had the date you know, October whatever, 16 whatever, had the time, 11.15 in the evening, and he wrote the word fire. That's all, fire. Just the presence of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And just and, and it was amazing, that little piece of paper, he took it out of every coat as the coat wore out and sewed it into the next coat. And it was on his person when they found him dead at, at the end of his life. So that experience was so powerful to him. Should we seek that experience? 
I think so. <laughs> it says, you know, you children ask your fathers for something good, right? And what do fathers say? They don't give them a stone or a scorpion or a snake, right? <laughs> you, if you then, though you are evil, know how to ask good gifts for your father, Luke says, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So, if he's already your father in heaven, you have the indwelling spirit. He means effusions of the spirit, a pouring out of the spirit so that you sense his love. That's Beulah land. Why not have that? Um, but it's not an easy thing because God doesn't give it lightly. He doesn't give it lightly. He tests your heart. He tests you to see if you really want it. Do you really want to walk in Beulah land? Seek him for it. Ask him for it. And then see what he does. Homesick for heaven. Interesting, at that point, as they're walking through all this, um, they come to some vineyards and they eat and they enjoy it and they sleep. And he says, this is interesting. Now, I beheld in my dream that they talked more in their sleep at this time than ever they did in all their journey. And being in a muse thereabout, the gardener said even to me, Wherefore amusest thou at the matter? It is the nature of the fruit of the grapes of these vineyards to go down so sweetly as to cause the lips of them that are asleep to speak. Very interesting. It's a conversation between Bunyan and somebody in his dream. <laughs> and Bunyan said, gee, I was wondering. And he said, he's speaking to the dream. Are you wondering about this, that these guys are talking? Well, I think it's because of the vineyard and the food. Very interesting conversation. And we're going to get Bunyan testifying one more time before we're done this evening. So anyway, he has a conversation. After this, two shining ones come and speak to them. And the shining ones say, you are almost through with your journey. You have but two difficulties more, and then you'll be at the city. Two more. Then Christian and his companions, uh, companion asked the men to go along with them, and so they told them they would. But they said, you must obtain the city by your own faith. So I saw in my dream that they went on together until they came to the site of the gate. Now I further saw that betwixt them and the gate was a river. But there was no bridge to go over, and the river was very deep. And at the sight, therefore, of this river, the pilgrims were much stunned. But the men that went with them said, You must go through or you cannot come at the gate. The pilgrims then began to inquire if there was no other way to the gate, to which they answered, Yes, but there hath not any save two, to wit Enoch and Elijah, been permitted to tread that path since the foundation of the world, nor shall there be until the last trumpet shall sound. The pilgrims then, especially Christian, began to, to despond in their minds and look this way and that, but, could, but no way could be found by them by which they might escape the river. Then they asked the men if the waters were all of the same depth. They said no, yet they could not help them in that case. For said they, you shall find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of the place. Then they addressed themselves to the water and entering Christian immediately began to sink and crying out to his good friend, hopeful, he said, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All his waves go over me. Then said the other, be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom and it is good. This is incredibly profound. What's going on here? They're both dying, but one of them is having an easier time than the other. You know, hopeful, it's like he could just walk right across. And here's Christian. It's like he's floundering and drowning and going through a wretched time. And they were told ahead of time it would be in proportion to their faith as they trusted through that experience. Then said Christian, Ah, my friend, the sorrows of death have compassed me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. 
And with that, a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian, so that he could not see before him. Listen now. Also, he in great measure lost his senses so that he could neither remember nor orderly talk of any of those sweet refreshments that he had met with in the way of his pilgrimage. Sometimes people forget at the end. Maybe even have Alzheimer's. Maybe they have uh, senility or some other thing. They can't remember those things. And so they're not themselves. And so they go through a wretched time crossing the river. But all the words that he spake still tended to discover that he had horror of mind and his heart fears that he should die in that river and never obtain entrance in at the gate. Here also, as they stood by, perceived he was much in the troublesome thoughts of the sins that he had committed. Do you hear that? Of the sins that he committed both before he was pilgrim and since he had begun his pilgrim journey. Both of them. Of the two, I'm more troubled by the second category. The things that we've done since we came to know Christ. He's very troubled by this. It was also observed that he was troubled with apparitions of hobgoblins and evil spirits. Forever and anon, he would intimate so much by words. Hopeful, therefore, listen here, had much ado to keep his brother's head above water. Isn't that precious? They're going through it together, and he's doing everything he can to lift him up and keep him up and keep encouraging and talking to him and ministering to him. Blessed the mercy uh, that he has here, the mercy for his brother. And he lifts him up and he helps him, but... He would lift him up and sometimes Christian would be quite gone down and then after a while would rise up again half dead. Hopeful also would endeavor to comfort him saying, Brother, I see the gate and men are standing by to receive us. But Christian would answer, It is for you. It is for you that they wait. For you have been hopeful ever since I knew you. And so also have you, said he to Christian. Ah, brother, said Christian. Surely if I was right, he would now arise to help me. But for my sins he hath brought me into the snare and hath left me. Then Hopeful said, My brother, you have quite forgot the text where it is said of the wicked, There are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Psalm 73. Some of them just go right through. No problem at all. They die with no trouble at all. Christian's concerned because he knows there's a judge on the other side, believes firmly in that, and is concerned. But his faith is weak at this point too because he would know that he was forgiven through Christ. These troubles and distresses, said Hopeful, that you go through in these waters are no sign to you that God has forsaken you, but they are sent to try you, whether you will call to mind that which heretofore you have received of his goodness and live upon him in your distress. Then I saw in my dream that Christian was as in amuse for a while. He thought for a while about what Hopeful said, to whom also Hopeful added this word, Be of good cheer. Jesus Christ makes thee whole. And with that, Christian broke out with a loud voice. Oh, I, I see him again. And he tells me, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. Then they both took courage. And the enemy was after that as still as a stone until they were got over. So what was it that helped him? It was scripture, as always. It's the testimony of the word of God. Christian, therefore, presently found some solid ground to stand upon, and so it followed that the rest of the river was but shallow, and thus they got over. You know, I feel like a lot of my ministry is to try to prepare you for death, to get ready so that you die well, that you die with a full assurance of faith, because you will all surely die if we're not the final generation. You will go through the river, and you can go through it in a way that honors and glorifies God, or you can go through it in a way that does not. Either way, if you're a believer, you'll make it through, and you'll get to the celestial city. But why not go through it filled with faith? Why not be a testimony to those that stand around? You know, God will put you on display. And so prepare yourself. 
And how do you prepare yourself? Be faithful today. That's all. Follow Christ today. Stay close to Him in your disciplines. Read the Word of God. Pray. Be faithful to what He calls you to do, and you'll, He'll get you through. You'll be drawing on that well, that reserve of faith, as you travel across the river. And also, I like Hopeful's ministry. Could we have that kind of a ministry to a dying brother or sister? I think we need to. Now, upon the bank of the river on the other side, isn't that sweet? <laughs> on the other side, they saw the two shining men again who there waited for them. Wherefore, being come out of the river, they saluted them saying, we are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those that shall be the heirs of salvation. And then they went along towards the gate. I wonder if we've had angelic assistance all the way. And then finally to see it, to see the angels that are there, I don't know. But we know that they're ministering spirits. Maybe we've had many who have ministered to us. I don't know. Now you must note that the city stood upon a mighty hill, but the pilgrims went up that hill with ease because they had these two men to lead them up in the ar- by the arms and also they had left their mortal garments behind them in the river. For though they went in with them, they came out without them. They therefore went up here with much agility and speed, though the foundation upon which the city was framed was higher than the clouds. They therefore went up through the regions of the air, sweetly talking as they went, being comforted because they safely got over the river and had such glorious companions to attend them. The talk they had with the shining ones was about the glory of the place, who told them that the beauty and the glory of it was inexpressible. There, said they, is Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable company of angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. Hebrews 12, by the way. It's not one of the more famous ones, but look it up. It's a sweet chapter. You are going now, said they, to the paradise of God, wherein you shall see the tree of life and eat of the never-fading fruits thereof. And when you come there, you shall have white robes given you, and your walk and talk shall be every day with the king, even all the days of eternity. There you shall not see again such things as you saw when you were in the lower region upon the earth, to wit, sorrow, sickness, affliction, and death, for the former things are passed away. You are now going to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, and to the prophets, men that God hath taken away from the evil to come, and that are now resting upon their beds, each one walking in his righteousness." The men then asked, what, was, what must we do in the holy place? To whom it was answered, You must there receive the comforts of all your toil and have joy for all your sorrow. You must reap what you have sown, even the fruit of all your prayers and tears and sufferings for the king by the way. In that place you must wear crowns of gold and enjoy the perpetual sight and vision of the Holy One, for there you shall see him as he is. There you shall also serve him continually with praise, with shouting and thanksgiving, whom you desire to serve in the world, though with much difficulty because of the infirmity of your flesh. Amen and amen to that. We fight it every day, don't we? And I'm looking forward to leaving it behind in the river. (laughs) With much difficulty you serve the king because of the infirmity of your flesh. There your eyes shall be delighted with seeing and your ears with hearing the pleasant voice of the mighty one. There you shall enjoy your friends again that are gone thither before you. There you shall with joy receive even everyone that follows into the holy place after you. There also shall you be clothed with glory and majesty and put into an equipage fit to ride out with the king of glory. When he shall come with sound of trumpet in the clouds as upon the wing of the wind, you shall come with him. And when he shall sit upon the throne of judgment, you shall sit by him. Yea, and when he shall pass sentence upon all the workers of iniquity, let them be angels or men, you shall also have a voice in that judgment. 
because they were his and your enemies. Also, when he shall again return to the city, you shall go too with the sound of trumpet and be ever with him. Now, while they were thus drawing toward the gate, by the way, that was all talk. That was the conversation as they were going up because they're not there yet. But they're going up through the celestial regions heading toward the celestial city and they're talking about what it's going to be like. Now, while they're thus drawing toward the gate, behold, a company of the heavenly host came out to meet, meet them, to whom it was said by the other two shining ones, these are the men that have loved our Lord when they were in the world and have left all for his holy name. And he hath sent us to fetch, him, fetch them, and we have brought them thus far on their desired journey, that they may go in and look their Redeemer in the face with joy. Then the heavenly host gave a great shout, saying, Blessed are they who are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb, then there came also at this time to meet them several of the king's trumpeters, clothed in white and shining raiment, who with melodious noises and loud made even the heavens to echo with their sound. These trumpeters saluted the Christian and his fellow, saluted Christian and his fellow with ten thousand welcomes from the world. And thus they did with shouting and sound of trumpet. And this done, they compassed them round on every side. Some went before, some behind, some on the right hand and some on the left. And they guided them up through the upper regions, continually sounding as they went with melodious noise in notes on high so that the very sight was to them that could behold it as if heaven itself were come down to meet them. Thus, therefore, they walked on together. And as they walked, ever and anon, these trumpeters would, even with joyful sound, would, by mixing music with looks and gestures, still signify to Christian and his brother how welcome they were into their company and with what gladness they would come to meet them. Now, as were these two men, as it were, in heaven before they even got there, they were being swallowed up with the sight of angels and with hearing of their melodious notes. And here also the city itself being in view, and they thought they heard all the bells therein to ring to welcome them thereto. But above all, the warm and joyful thoughts that they had about their own dwelling there with such company and that forever and ever. Oh, by what tongue or pen can their glorious joy be expressed? And thus they came up to the gate. Now, when they were at the gates, there was written over it in letters of gold, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have rights to the tree of life and may enter in to the city the gates of the city. Blessed are they that do his commandments. Very interesting. Now, I preached in Romans 2 that obedience to the commands is an absolutely infallible test of salvation if Jesus is the one judging your obedience. And so it is. You are given according to what your works deserve. And out of justification by faith comes a flow of righteous deeds and acts, obediences to the commands of God. And only those that live that way will enter the city. And why do I say that? It says, make every effort to live at peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so there's a practical holiness that God works out in our lives. And without that, we do not enter the city. But God will work that. It's part of the salvation that he's giving to us. Praise God for that. And then I saw in my dream that the shining men bid them call at the gate. The which, when they did, some looked down from over the gate. To wit, Enoch, Moses, and Elijah to whom it was said, These pilgrims are come from the city of destruction for the love they bear to the king of this place. And then the pilgrims gave in to them each man his certificate. Remember what he received when he trusted Christ? What is the certificate? Um, justifying faith, I guess, is the simplest way. Assurance of salvation is what some people think. Whatever it is, that's what they gave in at the gates. I think it means authenticity. They are authentic Christians. Without the certificate, you don't enter. 
Okay? Authenticity, saving faith, which they had received at the beginning, and those therefore were carried into the king, who when he had read them said, Where are the men? To whom it was answered, They are standing without the gate, outside the gate. Then the king commanded to open the gate, that the righteous nation may enter in. Now I saw in my gate that these two men, now I saw in my dream that these two men went in at the gate, and lo, as they entered, they were transfigured. Isn't that sweet? The doctrine of glorification at that instant transformed perfect, holy, and righteous for nothing but perfect and holy and righteous people. No one but them may enter into that city. And so God perfectly completes the salvation work in us. When we see him, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. They also had raiment put on them that shone like gold. They were also that met them with harps and crowns and gave them to them the harps to praise with and the crowns in token of honor. Then I heard in my dream that all the bells in the city rang for joy. And it was said to them, Enter ye into the joy of your Lord. I also heard the men themselves and they sang with a loud voice saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Now, just as the gates were opened to let in the men, I looked in after them, and behold, the city shone like the sun, and the streets were paved with gold. And in them walked many men with crowns on their heads and palms in their hands and golden harps to sing praises with. There were also of them that had wings and answered one another without intermission, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And after that they shut up the gates which when I had seen, I wished myself among them. Bunyan, you're right, he's writing this and saying, <laughs> here I am in a stinking prison in Bedford, England, and I'm not up there. <laughs> which when I saw, I wished myself were with them. But we're not there yet, are we, folks? <laughs> oh. Now, while I was gazing upon all these things, I turned my head to look back and saw ignorance come up to the riverside. But he soon got over, and that without half the difficulty which the other two men met with. For it happened that there was in that place one vain hope, a ferryman that with his boat helped them quickly over. Helped him quickly over. So he, as the other I saw, did ascend the hill to come up to the gate, only he came alone. I mean, all this I've been reading for the last ten minutes is what they got as they went up to the gate. He's walking up alone or going up alone. Neither did any man come to meet him with the least encouragement. When he was come up to the gate, he looked up to the writing that was above and began to knock, supposing that entrance should have been quickly administered to him. But he was asked by the men that looked over the top of the gate, Whence come you, and what would you have? He answered, I have eaten and drank in the presence of the king, and he is taught in our streets. Then they asked him for his certificate that they might go in and show it to the king. So he fumbled in his bosom for one, and found none. Hmm. Then said they, Have you none? But the man answered, Never a word. So they told the king, but he would not come down to see him, but rather commanded the two shining ones that conducted Christian hopeful to the city to go out and take ignorance and bind him hand and foot and have him away. Then they took him up and carried him through the air to that door that I saw in the side of the hill and put him in there. Then I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven as well as from the city of destruction. So I awoke and behold, it was a dream. One last thing, Bunyan's conclusion, and it's a poem. 
Now, reader, I have told my dream to thee. See if thou canst interpret it to me, or to thyself, or neighbor. But take heed of misinterpreting, for that, instead of doing good, will but thyself abuse. By misinterpreting, evil ensues. Take heed also that thou be not extreme in playing with the outside of my dream. Nor let my figure, figure or similitude put thee into a laughter or a feud. Leave this for boys and fools. But as for thee, do thou the substance of my matter see. Put by the curtains, look within my veil, turn up my metaphors and do not fail. There, if thou seekest them, such things to find as will be helpful to an honest mind. What of my dross thou findest there? Be bold to throw away, but yet preserve the gold. What if my gold be wrapped up in ore? None throws away the apple for the core. But if thou shalt cast away all as vain, I know not but twill make me dream again. And then comes part two. <laughs> I gave you on the back side here uh, some questions that they ask, that one of the commentators in Pilgrim's Progress asks you to ask yourself, probing questions. Am I in Christ, the way, the only way to the kingdom or not? Do I see that all other ways, whether of sin or self-righteousness, lead to hell? Does Christ dwell in my heart through faith? Am I a new creature in Christ? Do I renounce my own righteousness as well as abhor my sins? Do I look to Christ for righteousness and depend only upon Him for holiness? Is Christ the only hope of my soul and the confidence of my heart? And do I desire to be found in Christ, knowing by the word and feeling by the teaching of the Spirit that I am totally lost of myself? Thus is Christ formed in me, the only hope of glory. Do I study to please Christ as well as hope to enjoy Him? Is fellowship with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, so prized by me as to seek it and esteem it above all things? If so, this is a quote from Mason, though I may find all things in nature, that means in your flesh, in the world and in Satan, continually opposing this, yet I am in Christ the way, and He is in me the truth and the life. Isn't that sweet? Why don't we close in prayer? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I thank you for the things that we have learned by studying Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. We have learned so much. We have learned that the Christian life is meant to be a pilgrimage, a journey, O oh Lord, that only begins at the wicked gate and at the cross as we come to faith in Christ. But uh, through many dangers, toils, and snares, you bring us to the celestial city. We thank you for that. Help us, O oh Lord, to take heed to ourselves, to not give up the careful watching that you want us to have over ourselves and each other. Help us to love one another enough to confront each other in sin. Help us to do for each other what Christian and faithful did for them, each other until faithful was martyred and for what hopeful and Christian did for each other so many times. I pray that we do that for each other. We thank you for Christ most of all. We thank you that he was willing to die in our place or else this story would only for us have a terrifying and gruesome end. We thank you that rather it has a glorious end as we read about tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.